Our scripture this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you'd like to take one of the Pew Bibles. That's uh, there almost to the end of the New Testament. It's page 992 in one of these Pew Bibles. I began a series on uh, this letter of 1 Timothy back before Christmas, and then I want to return to it for just a few weeks as we lead up to our missions conference. As you're turning to 1 Timothy 5, I would remind you that this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his number one man, his main assistant, Timothy, whom Paul had sent to the city of Ephesus to pastor the church there. The church was some eight or ten years old now. Paul himself had gone to this ancient metropolitan area, not ancient then, but even it was a great city in those days, and he had spent three years, the longest one place that he spent on ministry. He had led people to Christ. He had seen the church established. He had trained the leadership, the elders, the shepherds of the congregation. Then we have a very moving scene in the book of Acts where Paul departs from them, says he will never see them again, and he has a word from God that even from their own midst, false teachers would arise in the church. Now it's years later that indeed has happened. False teachers have arisen, and he sends he sends Timothy there to, to straighten some things out, to order the church, and here at this part of the letter, he's giving some instructions on relationships within the church. Hear God's words. I begin in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. For she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray again. Our Father, we approach this passage with, uh, almost with fear and trembling. We are the local expression of the church here at First Presbyterian. We pray for understanding and application even in our lives and in our corporate life. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Christ wants to create a people, not merely isolated individuals who believe in him. So we are not saved, though we are saved individually, we are not saved and then choose optionally to be part of the church. Christ died for his people. We are saved through faith. And when by faith, we also then become part of the people for whom Christ died. John Stott, the late John Stott, said, The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. The church is God's new community. So by becoming a Christian, by recognizing my need of a Savior because of my problem of sin and death, and by realizing Jesus was the one that God sent to be our Redeemer, to be a substitute, and that he died in my place, that God put my sins on him on the cross and punished him in my place, by believing in that and trusting in that, by turning to him, that I am not only a new individual creature, but part of a new community, the church. And so, thankfully, he doesn't leave us just to write the book on how to do church, uh, but he's given us structure. He's given us some, some principles that uh, supersede uh, culture and time and what time in the, in the future these things would occur. And so here it's talking about relationships and how we are to relate to one another. And he's got the theme of respect throughout this. Showing respect for one's elders is not simply a cultural invention. It's not something just for America or England or wherever else. It is God's will. And here, though he's writing to Timothy, who at that time was about 30 years of age, and he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, there are some words here that are particular for Timothy, but they are also general guidelines for all of us in the church, pastors, leaders, and so forth. So you'll hear me as I seek to open this up, this passage up, say him as in Timothy and also us because there's application, I think, across the board. Even the minister such as Timothy, who was a relatively younger man at 30 years of age, he is to treat older men with deference and the way to do this may vary from culture to culture. According to the Old Testament, young men were to stand up before the older men. It says in Leviticus 19, stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. If an old man came into your presence, you were to stand up in his honor. In the Asian church today, young men obey this principle by bowing before their elders. But here in the Western world, we tend not to have actions that demonstrate as much respect. We don't show our respect as much, but we should. And we should give honor and preference to our elders any way that we can, especially in the church. I think one practical application of this to those of us that are parents or even grandparents is children should be taught to respect their elders. This is not a cultural thing. It's, it's biblical for parents to teach them uh, to know how to honor older people. Uh, teach that young boy to look others in the eye, other men when meeting them, and teach them how to shake hands. My father was an attorney, and I remember as a, a young boy, he took me to the courthouse one day, and he made a big deal about it. I'm going to take you, and I want to I introduce you to a lot of my friends. And he told me that days in advance, and the day came, he took me down there, and he said, here's how we do it. We're going to walk in. I'm going to introduce you. He'd say, uh, 
so-and-so, this is my son, Chip. And Chip, this is Mr. So-and-so. Now, now meet him. And he said, you stick your hand out, you look him in the eyes, and none of this wet rag stuff, you grip his hand and you shake his hand. No offense to those of you that are the wet rag handshake. <laughs> you shouldn't be. You need to grip their hand. And... But children need to be taught that. We, we don't learn respect naturally and honor of others. Uh, so there's nothing spiritual and godly about rudeness. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are. There's nothing uh, rude, and you can call that being authentic all you want. But there's not a place for that as believers. And we see that here in this passage. I'm just not making that up. So how do we respect one another? And he's going to tell us in an economy of words how, how we are to do this, how Timothy was to do this. First, he deals with older men. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. A Timothy, as a pastor, would be in a position at times where he would need to uh, confront, uh, admonish an older brother in Christ. Maybe it'd be, if Timothy was 30, maybe this person would be 40, 50, 60, 70, but just older. And Paul says, when you have to do that, uh, don't rebuke him from a position of superiority or even of equality, but with loving respect, as if he were a father. Don't lash out at him. Don't talk down to him. And, and he gives us a simple illustration, like a father. Now, I had a father. Most of us here had fathers we knew, I assume. I never rebuked my father. I was never given the opportunity, nor had the desire. I never instructed him. He never came and asked my advice for what he should do in any situation. But if that need had arisen... I would have approached it with fear and trembling, if at all. Well, so to say, you deal with him as you would a father, your father. We get the idea. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. But the tone with older people, Christian leaders, should be one of respect and affirmation. Now, I want to make some observations from this. First, older men can still become spiritual shipwrecks even as they approach the final harbor. They can still crash at the end. They can make, older men can make big mistakes and they can commit very public and damaging sins, damaging to themselves and to their loved ones. And I believe that the tendency in our church and in most churches is to ignore it and to neglect it. After all, I'm assuming, wrongly probably, that, well, it must all be well with my elder brother because he is my elder brother, and I do look up to him. And that's failing to realize that regardless of our age and regardless of whether a man has walked with Christ for four years or 40 years or 70 years, he is still a target, perhaps a bigger target, to the fiery darts of the evil one to doubt and to anxiety and loss of faith and bitterness and confusion and worry or whatever it may be, or sexual temptation. Now, I saw a headline this week I've never seen in my whole life, and that is that in America today, sexually transmitted diseases are on the increase among the elderly. So let's not assume anything. Let's not think that all of us even at the latter stages, you might say, of life, that, well, he just let him be. You know, he, he's all, everything's bound to be all right after that many years. 
The second observation is older men are not to be neglected in ministry. They're not to be overlooked. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be pandered to or excused because of sin. It should be taken seriously and dealt with with humility and with respect. So if a leader, watch this, listen please, if, if a leader is 30 years old like Timothy and he's confronting me, I'm 56 years old, I would be the older man. And he should deal with me with humility and deference. But the same with me, if I'm addressing some of you that I won't name here that are older than I am, I'm to approach you with humility and deference. So it's not just one group that's the older and the younger. Well, how is Timothy to treat younger men who are younger than himself? He, Paul goes on and says, a younger man as brothers. Treat them as brothers, in other words, as equals. Treat younger men as though you are on the same footing. When I say equals and superiors, we're not talking about acceptance before God. That We're talking about from a social standpoint, from a Christian maturity standpoint, the way it should be. So you should treat younger men differently than older men. Treat them as peers. So the same time younger men are treating older men with deference and respect, older men should treat younger men as equals. So the 30-year-old coming to me to confront me about something, he should treat me as a father, but I should treat him as a brother. Does that make sense? I should not talk down to him or say, well, you'll know, you, you don't have any wisdom. And, you know, 26 years from now, you'll see a lot better and clearer than you do right now. No, I should treat him as an equal. And so there's dignity and there's intimacy at all levels, should be. Now, there's a principle here that we desperately need in our church. Because our church, like many churches that have been around for a while, that are multi-generational, and that is that we've got generations that go back and back, and numerous pastors through the years, rather than like one church that was started 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and it's a single generational church. Uh, We live with the consequences, good and bad, of a modern invention, and that is Sunday school. Sunday school was invented by Robert Rakes in the 1800s in England, originally was invented, was created to teach children to read the Bible. They were illiterate, and so it was school on the one day that they were not at work, Sunday. So they started these, Robert Rakes, who was a magazine, I mean a newspaper editor, started this school. Now it has changed and it's in churches and and it has led us with many good things and things that aren't so good that we are segregated by ages and stages of life. In a larger church, and I would say more than about 125 people, to minister to one another, you need sub-congregations. God has put elders as shepherds in churches, so there needs to be an organizational structure to do that. You cannot get to know a lot of people within... Uh, a church once it's over a couple of hundred people. Uh, so we have this structure in our church that's age and stage, junior high, senior high, young adults, young couples. And most Sunday school classes in a church like ours, even the oldest, were started as young married Sunday school classes. And they've just remained that way through the years. So if we're not careful, you can only be with people who are like you your age and stage, exclusively. If it is exclusively, there's a certain unhealthiness about it, and it's not fulfilling what the church really ought to be. Now, I'm just noting that as a 
is an issue within our ministry with no clear-cut answer, but I think we're going to hit something right here that is helpful. Here is the principle in this passage where he talks about how to deal with older and younger, younger men as brothers and so forth. Here's what I think one of the implications of this is. It is the responsibility of older Christians to bridge the generation gap and not the other way around. It is our responsibility, it is my responsibility to be looking to engage younger people than myself or older if it need be. But it's the responsibility of the older Christians from what we read here. The proper way to talk to a toddler is to get down on your hands and knees, to get down to their level. In the same way, we need to reach down, you might say, in age to learn the interest of those who are younger than us and what they are dealing with. I'm not trying to talk like this idiocy within our culture where older people try to look and emulate younger people, which just looks foolish to, to to me. Um, for a lot of reasons, but that's not in my notes. (laughs) One of the best ways younger Christians become mature is to, when older, more mature believers, treat them with a measure of equality. If you want to increase your influence, it probably will not be with people your age. Now, I'm not trying to sound funny, but often people our age, we've known each other, the same people that are your peers, whatever, whoever your peers are, You mean a lot to them, but they don't really care what you think. (laughs) Well, probably more than I'm portraying. You increase your influence by going down to younger people. If it's senior high, they have amazing influence with junior high. College students have amazing influence with high school. Younger adults with younger adults. 50-somethings with 30-somethings. That is natural, and that is biblical. There should be an influence like that. So if you are ministry-minded, and I hope you are, and you want to have a strong influence, go down in age. Deal with younger people. I'm talking about neglected chip. Have you just said in the sermon to neglect all the older people? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I hope it's not what I'm saying. It's not in this passage. So there is a danger here for the younger, that even if older Christians treat you as equal, equal, you should not think of yourself as equal. There should still be a humility and respect and a looking up. Older men should treat their juniors with fellowship. Younger men should treat their seniors with humility. Now, many of you know that I was a a campus minister with Reform University Ministries before we moved here. The, The tricky thing about campus ministry, it's a wonderful ministry. You reach that people in the stage of life that can make major decisions like that. They're not tied down yet to mortgages, marriages, and MasterCards and all that kind of thing. I mean, you can just, it's, it's a very reachable age for Christ. I, I love campus ministry. But there's an occupational hazard for those who lead in that ministry. They're always up, talking down because they're a little bit older than the students. They know more than the students are teaching. And there's, unless there's a good church, it, it, it can, uh, it's not necessarily healthy for that, for that individual if, if he and his family are not intentionally engaging with older people. So we move here. I'm around a lot of older men. I get to see 
Uh, it was like, it really was like drinking out of a fire hydrant. The first few years I was here, just being around older elders and seeing them function alone and with others and talking to them because I'd been around people that were younger for so, for so many years. All right, how's he deal with older women? How is Timothy as a pastor to relate to them? It says he is to admonish them, admonish them as mothers. This is how church leaders are to relate to older women in general. They should be loved. They should be listened to. They should be protected and cared for. You older women, I'll even say this, you possibly even elderly women, you often do not realize what a vital part you play in the life of the church and especially in the lives of the pastor's elders, pastors and elders. You can be an incredible source of encouragement and influence. I've been very grateful to a number of you who are even here today. Older women who have called me or emailed me or asked me to come to their house and have helped to inform me on things I needed to know about uh, things with our church or with our ministry or things maybe from the past I was not aware of that would help me and others make better decisions today. And they've done that in a godly way, and it's been very valuable. And Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul knew this. One of the most interesting chapters and different chapters in the Bible, if you haven't read it, is Romans 16. If you've not read Romans 16, you might want to open your Bible this afternoon and read it. For what comes at the end of Romans, after 15-plus chapters of some of the greatest theology and doctrinal teaching in the Bible, you come to chapter 16, and then there comes a running list of people that Paul is sending personal greeting to, and he's naming them by name. And though it covers many verses, beginning in verse 11, it says, Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophisa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. And then in verse 13, it says this. It's easy to overlook it because it's brief. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You ever seen that passage? Here's the Apostle Paul saying, greet this guy and his mother, who basically has been my mother as well. She served as a mother to me. Now, if a rebuke is ever in order, it should be given as a loving son to a mother. I read of the example of the life of C.S. Lewis, Lewis served in World War I, and he served alongside of a close friend named Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y, Paddy Moore. And those two men agreed before combat that if Moore was killed in combat, C.S. Lewis would care for his mother, for, for Moore's mother. Well, indeed, that's what happened. Paddy Moore was killed during battle, and Lewis upheld his end of the bargain. By all accounts, Patty's mother, Mrs. Moore, was a difficult woman to live with. And yet, Lewis treated her like his own. She lived in Lewis's own home for 30-plus years. Now, some of us had wonderful mothers. Some of us did not. But it is not too late to seek out older women in your life to be your mentors, confidants, and counselors. I have a very close pastor friend who, by his own admission, had a very combative relationship with his mother who died years ago. And then he began serving as pastor of a church that, by his own words, was filled with the same type of women, still magnolias. 
And he said, I found that I was responding and reacting against all of them, just like I had with my mother. And when I see him from time to time, he's told me for the past several years, I guess five to eight years, he has a group of two older women and himself, the three of them get together once a month to talk. In a sense, they are like spiritual directors for my friend. What a blessing. That's what Paul said to Timothy. You treat the older women as mothers if you have to admonish them. Younger women, they are to be ministered to as sisters with absolute purity, literally with chastity. Timothy was to treat women the same chaste manner and protectiveness that he would have given to his own blood sister. Now, I didn't have a brother, but I have a sister. She's two years older than I am. And as kids, we would fight and argue, I guess like most siblings do. Well, I know none of you did it, but my sister and I did. But I would do anything, and I will do anything for her. I was talking with a good friend of mine. <laughs> he was laughing. He and his wife had several children. One was one of the sons was like, he's like 6'3", played football in college, huge guy. And his younger sister, who was in high school, had been asked to go to a high school dance. And this brother went up to the guy who had asked her at school and said, you mistreat her and I'll break your neck. And walked off. And he walked off. Then he turned around and came back to the same guy and he said, no, I'll break every bone in your body. Then he turned around and walked off. Now, I'm not saying that ought to be happening in the halls of First Presbyterian Church. But you get the idea. You get the idea. Do I want my sister treated mistreated by others? Do I want her threatened? Do I want her harmed? Do I want her lied about? Do I want her lusted after or seduced by someone? Do I want her mocked or insulted? No. You want God's best for your sister. Christian leader, that is the way to relate to younger women in the church. With all purity. My final observation on that before shifting gears quickly about to about widows, is a healthy church should have a variety of ages and stages. We've got some aberrant models today. We've got churches that are exploded on the scene that are all young people, all teens or college age. We have churches that even though they don't have to, they just decide to remain ingrown and then become all just older, older people. And there's no children, there's no... Um, and you can tell, go to the nursery. <laughs> Find out if there are any kids in the nursery. Uh, and those are aberrant. I would say those are aberrant expressions of a local church. Not that, every, not that any church is not aberrant to some degree, any local church. But to celebrate that as this is the way church ought to be, I'd say, no, the church, ideally, from what we see in the New Testament churches, is multi-generational, cross-generational, and with relationships between all of them. Okay. Now we hit a big section that I've got about 45 minutes worth of material and about six minutes to deliver it. Widows. The Old Testament puts a priority on widows. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10 says God himself will defend the widows. Jesus ministered to the widows. The raising of the widow's son in Luke 7. The complement of the widow's offering in Luke 21. The New Testament church in Acts chapter 6 with the deacons... Uh, Chosen with the distribution of food, which involved the widows. James 1 saying pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows in their distress and orphans. 
He uses a term here in verse 3 that's repeated several times, and that is honor widows who are truly widows. What is a truly widow? It means that she's been left all alone. It means that she has no family to support her. So we see that simply being a widow did not mean a person was truly a widow or truly widow. A truly widow was one who had no financial support and no family to help her. So there became a criteria that for a widow to receive financial support from the church, she needed to be a truly widow, not have other resources, not have other family that could help her. Secondly, a second qualification, she was to be godly. Uh, Verses 5 to 7 speak of that. Was this widow, the church leaders, had to ask some hard questions. Was she a godly person? So there's spiritual qualifications of being godly. There's financial qualifications of being destitute. What about family responsibility? Verse 4 speaks to all of us today. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In the same way we care for little ones, there will come a day in God's rhythm of generations where those little ones will grow and they will care for us. They will hold us in their arms, so to speak, to care for us as we are older. This responsibility has or will come in some form probably to most of us. And when you care for your parents, you are doing it, as it says in verse 4, you are making some return to them. God is pleased with such actions, it says in verse 4. This is pleasing in the sight of God. And then just to make the point, in verse 8, he states it in a negative way, where he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if he didn't have our attention before, perhaps he has it there. It is true that even the pagans, the unbelievers in Rome, would care for their parents and grandparents. So Paul is telling Timothy, if Christians don't do it, they're worse than those around them who do, who are not not believers. So how do we apply this from first century Ephesus to our modern times today? It was as difficult for them as it is for us now. Christian sons and daughters are responsible for the care of their helpless parents and grandparents. Let me state it again. Christian sons and daughters are responsible for the care of their helpless parents and grandparents. And neglect, emotional neglect, abandonment is not an option. It's not a viable option if we want to walk with Christ. For such conduct is worse than an unbeliever. Now, After the Christian family has cared for its own, then the church enters the picture. We are to care for the truly widows, those without the family to care for them, those without the means for their own uh, help. And it says they are to put their hope in God. Real widows are found in every congregation. Church plants, we were part of three church plants before we moved here. There were always widows there. Some fit this criteria, some did not. Uh, for help. Good night, I'm out of time, and I'm right in the middle of this. Two last thoughts. Without going into the details, beginning in verse 9 through verse 15 and a little bit into verse 16, we have a different category of widows. 
Now, I used to read these verses quickly and would think he's still expounding on who should receive financial care. But there's a change here. It begins to mention a list. The New International Version says, do not put anyone on the list. Here it says, enrolled. There was some kind of list, and it was beyond the financial support. That's what comes up to verse 9 through verse 8. He's describing that. There apparently was a certain now a commitment where a widow who did not have any other help and she had to meet these criteria. She had to be at least 60 years old. She had to have demonstrated good works in five areas, the raising of children, the, the, the washing of the uh, feet of the saints, and so forth, all that spelled out there in those five areas. And she had to make a commitment not to remarry. So there was a, there was a list, there was a recruitment, a, a list, a designated group of women who committed, you might say, to the church. And they would not remarry, and they served through prayers and supplications, as it says in verse 5. Now, that is different from just a widow who was strictly just receiving financial support from the church. Now, with that in mind, I want to leave you with this thought. They, get, they served with prayer and supplication. Perhaps the most notable widow in the Bible in this area was Anna. We find her in Luke chapter 2. It says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. She married her husband, had lived together seven years. He died, and now she's been serving in the temple up to the age of being 84. It says in, in Luke 2, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That almost seems verbatim, verse 5 of 1 Timothy 5. Prayers and fastings day and night. I read of a pastor who visited a Korean church recently, not too long ago, in New York City. And every Friday, he said, the older women in the church, including many older widows, would gather. And they'd gather to pray every Friday. You know how long they would pray? All night long. All night long. They would pray for the church. They would pray for God's work throughout the world. And he said, the prayers of widows give strength to the church. John Calvin said, prayer by day and night is the special privilege of widows and the childless. For they are free from the things that very properly hinder those who rule a family from doing the same. So if you are a widow, God gives you and invites you and urges you to be part of a very, very special ministry, and that's the ministry of continual intercession. There were some women then that did commit to this. Paul wants the younger widows to marry. He says they should not make this commitment because then when they desire to marry, they'll violate basically their commitment to the church. So his desire for them was let them remarry. Don't put their names on the list. Don't let them make the commitment to the church like this. So if you are a widow, God calls you to enter into deep fellowship with him through prayer. And with that thought in mind, perhaps, perhaps the greatest ministry of your work, of your life is just beginning. The greatest ministry work of your life, if you give yourself to prayer and supplication, is just beginning. And that's the great work of intercessory prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you care about all of us in general and in, in specific ways. We pray that we would know your grace and your mercy and your love, that we would relate to one another as recipients of your grace and mercy, 
that we would love your church, knowing that this is just the beginning of what will continue in eternity. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.